All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It is Flannel Friday, and uh, I don't have any flannel on, but it's still Flannel Friday. Hope you're having a good one. This is Just Human number 157, and I have way too much news to get to today, or at least stuff that I want to cover. I'm thinking about doing a bonus hour, depending on how much I get through. Um, Not sure I could record it tonight, but we'll see how much I get through today on the show. And then if I don't get through all the stuff I want to get through, then I'm going to do a bonus hour over the weekend because there's a lot of important stuff that I really want to cover thoroughly. And uh, none of it has to do with yay. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go ahead and bounce off the the Kanye West coverage and story. Um, I think I've had my fill. I think a lot of people have. Um, I don't know what's going on with Kanye. I don't fully understand it. Um, I just know that he said, I just know that I thought Kanye was Elon and Trump's friend and they were working together on a lot of stuff. And I saw lots of indications of that. And then in the past 24 hours or so, Kanye has said and done so many indefensible things and so many contradictory things that I just don't know what to to think. And, uh, it's, it's just disgusting. And I don't know, guys, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm maybe my first reaction of which when my very first reaction to this was yay, did Trump dirty by inviting people over like that. Maybe that was correct. Um, my friend, Brad, uh, my friend, Brad from, um, Brad CGC, uh, he put out a video yesterday clip from him in October where he said that yay is a total disinfo plant. And maybe he was right. I don't know, guys. But, um, yeah. I, I just, uh, I, I've, had, I've had enough for now. So, it's it's not good. Uh, whatever's going on, I would like to believe it's an op and um, it's all going to make sense later on and maybe it will. But right now, um, it's ugly. And... Not 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 something. Yeah, yeah. I just don't have anything good to say about it. So, good morning, and uh, hope you're having a good one. We're going to talk about Elon's bedside table, and I have a Substack from a friend of mine that has it's pretty good. And we're going to talk about the Eleventh Circuit and their ruling on the special master. DOD has a new inspectors general and I found a uh I found a, that there was a meeting of the inspectors general from three different departments recently in regards to Ukraine um which is pretty interesting considering the FTX scandal and some other things right now with Ukraine and then what I'm most excited about is that Joffe is back in the news we haven't heard about Joffe in a long time and there's been a development with one of a pretty big development with uh, one of his companies. And uh, I got a thread to read about it that goes in a lot of different directions. So let's get right to it. This first topic that I want to cover. And by the way, philosophy for all. 
What a word. Yay, Fabe. Dude. <laughs> oh, dude, you made me snort. That is so good. Yay, Fabe, instead of kayfabe. Oh, my gosh. That is such a good term for it. <laughs> oh, now I want to cut. No, okay. No, no. We're just going to move on. We're just going to move on. Yay is getting dangerous to cover. It's, he, it's, yeah. All right. So Patriot CP, who's a member of my Telegram chat, um, he did some digging on, on Yay or uh, on Kanye's um, bedside table picture that, uh, man, that's going to stick. Yay, Fabe. That is going to stick. Man, that's a good term. Yay, Fabe. Man. All right. So he did, uh, Patriot CP put out this sub stack after doing some digging on, uh, Elon Musk bedside table picture, which was an odd picture. I mean, come on, there's, it's interesting that Elon just suddenly posted this picture of his bedside table and it's Elon. There's always more to it than what appears, you know, what is on the surface. He's an, he's an enigma. He's an interesting guy. So Patriot CP has this sub stack that's looking into what what these items are. It's pretty interesting, and I'd like to present it to you first this morning. All right. On the morning of November 28th, 2022, Elon Musk tweeted a photo of his bedside table. Many people just see an odd mixture of items on a table, while many others see so much more, as evident by the many various decodes put out by Anons in the past two days. Each individual item has a significant meaning and reason behind it being uh, behind it, but when you combine them all together, a larger picture begins to emerge, and we are about we are able to see a story that some have speculated about and never had any proof of. The analysis. Ignoring the water bottle and soda cans, which could have their own purpose, there is a story that Elon is telling through this photo. It confirms what many have suspected and reassures those who have questioned what Elon's true intentions are. Let's begin by examining the contents of the table, starting at the left, the front left corner, and work our way around in a clockwise direction. After examining each item individually, I will go back and tell how I see that they apply to Elon. The Vidra, or the Vedra. The Vedra is a type of club with a ribbed spherical head. The ribs may meet in a ball-shaped top, or they may be separate and end in sharp points, which with which to stab the Vedra is the weapon of Indra, the Vedic King or Vedic King of the divas in heaven. It is used symbolically by the Dharmic traditions of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism often to re- to represent firmness of spirit and spiritual power. The Vedra is a legendary and ritual weapon symbolizing the property of a diamond indestructibility and a thunderbolt irresistible force from ancient origins.net. The, the Vidra symbolizes an impenetrable, immovable and indestructible state of knowledge and enlightenment. According to the Hindu Puranas, Puranas or Puranas, the evil Asuras and the Machi and Vritra removed all of the light and moisture from the earth. It made the land inhospitable to living, to living beings Indra battled the demon gods unsuccessfully and as a last resort called upon their superior supreme god Vishnu for help, a weapon of the gods. 
Vishnu informed him that the o- that only a weapon that was neither solid nor liquid could kill Namuchi and Vitra. Vishnu had the divine carpenter, Tavashta, fashion Indra a marvelous weapon he could use to vanquish the dreadful Asuras. This new weapon, the Vedra, emitted thunderbolts. With it, Indra annihilated Namuchi and Vitra and returned the much-needed light and moisture back to the earth. The Vedra, or Vetra, that's a heart, Vadra, is representative of Upaya, skillful means, whereas its companion tool, the bell, denotes Prajna, wisdom. Now the Diamondback, this is the part of the photo I instantly recognize besides like Washington's, like the Durham boat. I recognize this because I know this video game very well. Next on the table is the Diamondback 357 revolver. Many are under the incorrect assumption that this is an actual gun. This is actually a 3D printed gun that is from the, the game Deus Ex Human Ev- Revolution, which is an awesome game. I love that game. This gun is a secondary weapon created for the spy in the game. Among other deceptions, this spy has disguise kits that allow him to make to take the form of any class of characters on either team, allowing him the ability to blend in with the enemy before stabbing his friends, quote unquote, in the back. With his special array of knives, the spy is able to kill virtually any enemies with a single blow, provided that they have not taken advanced precautions. Engineer-constructed buildings are able to be disabled and destroyed using the spy's sapper. The final key feature of the spy is his ability to see the names and health of all members of both teams, unlike the majority of players who can only see the names and health on their own team. This enables the spy to relay useful intelligence to his teammates. Now, I want to say... I want to give some comments on Deus Ex. Um, when COVID hit and the lockdowns began, I saw Elon tweet. Elon changed his profile picture to the um, the cover and the main character of the first Deus Ex game. And y'all may remember it if you follow Elon. He changed his um, profile pic to this right here. And that's from the very first Deus Ex game. There's really there's three good Deus Ex games. There's this one, the original one, Deus Ex Human Revolution and Deus Ex um, Mankind Divided. This game's storyline is this first one. The storyline is that a bunch of corporations and an evil government come up with a virus they infect mankind with. And that all of society is locked down because of a virus. Um, and I remember seeing this and thinking, man, Elon is hinting big time that SARS-CoV-2 is a bioweapon that's been released on the planet for dastardly nefarious purposes, evil purposes. And this is Elon's calm that that he knows what's going on. He did this right when the pandemic started. And then, um, I started playing this game and I played through the whole series of games during the COVID lockdown. Um, and it's crazy how many like sinks there are between Deus Ex, the game and what we've gone through the past couple years. Um, 
it's amazing. Anyway, this is Elon loves this game, and I've seen him use this game to send comms out. Just saying. All right. So when I saw this pistol on his bedside table, I I know it from the game, and I recognize that this picture was that was the the besides the Durham boat, it was that combination of this and the Durham boat that I was like, yeah, this this table's a comm. Okay. Washington's flintlock pistol. Now on to George Washington's flintlock pistol gift box. There is not a whole lot to note on the pistol itself, except that this is an exact replica of Washington's actual pistol that he wore during the revolution. The significance of this box is more from the photo and how it applies to Elon, which, which I will get into in a minute. Three books. The three, the books hiding behind the lamp in the water bottle. And let me, I'm just going to scroll up to remind y'all of the picture. So we've gone right here, the Vedra, the weapon, Deus Ex, the game right here. Then we have Washington's pistol and the Durham boat. Then going clockwise, next you have these three books. And that was the first thing that like we really dug on in my chat was, hey, what are these three books that are hiding back here that are barely, barely visible? All right, the books hiding behind the lamp and the water bottle are what looked the longest or what took the longest to figure out. Thanks to B-Hug, Joanne Coach, and Digi Soldier Q on Telegram, I think I can safely say I know what books are on the table. It's a three-book box set with red, white, and blue books. They all have gold titles on the spine. On the red book, you can just make out rules of civility. And on the blue book, the unit, that's what you can see is the unit, but it's actually uh, the United States is what it spells out. I found that George Washington had wrote a paper, later turned into a book titled George Washington's Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Companies and Conversation. On the spine, the title is shortened to Washington's Rules of Civility. This book can be found in a four-book set that also has the Constitution of the United States book with a blue cover. You can see those here. But of course, what's behind the lamp is a three-book set. But this and this match. When you align these two books, the lettering lines up with how they are in Elon's photo. If you look very closely, you can see a blurred goldish color on the red book through the water bottle. This blur appears in proximity to where George Washington, the author's name, is. The white book appears to be the Declaration of Independence that is found in this three-book set. Both of these sets shown above are from the same publisher, are the same size, and same approximate page length. This makes swapping books easily done and would still look like they belong together. What Elon apparently has done is take the red and blue books from the four-book set and put them in the three-book box, along with the white book. So he now has Washington's Rules of Civility, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution of the United States sitting on his table. What does this all mean? When you combine what these items represent, 
with what we are seeing occurring in this war, this one little tweet tells us so much about Elon. It tells us about his role in this operation in the past, present, and future. It tells us that he, the Department of Defense's largest contractor, is doing more than just building infrastructure for the military. Now, let's begin to find out how these four seemingly unrelated items fit together to reassure us that Elon is heavily engaged in this fight, and has been for quite some time. As the Vidra is the most important weapon in Buddhism, Elon has the single most important weapon in this war against the deep state, a weapon that is capable of bringing information from the dark into the light. Twitter is the Vidra. Twitter is the tool that is capable of bringing information from the dark recesses of censorship into the light where all will be able to see the truth. Twitter will enlighten the world and bring it back to a habitable place where information can flow freely. The Vidra, skillful, has a companion tool or counterpart that works with the prajna, wisdom. Who would have this other wise tool and what could this tool be? To answer that, let's jump to Washington's pistol where we find the photo of Washington crossing the Delaware River. This photo just happens to be the first ever photo that Q posted in drop number 14 on August 31st, 2017. It is not a coincidence that the military's largest contractor, certainly with some of the highest security clearances, just so happens to have a copy of the first photo found in the military's most secretive team a team that is less than 10 members total, and only seven are military. It is rather apparent that Elon is at the very least clued into the Q plan, if not one of the less than three civilian members who knows it all. Continuing with the crossing of the Delaware, this was a surprise attack that changed the course of the war. The surprise attack in our current war was Elon buying Twitter. The left never saw it coming. They never thought that they could lose control of their stranglehold of information. They never anticipated that someone would buy their coveted platform and take it private so even the board members would lose their control. Keeping the covert unseen surprise attack, let's apply the Diamondback. The name itself is pretty telling of the overall objective to get the Diamonds back, as Trump has been saying. By the way, when Trump mentions returning the diamonds, he does not just mean the stolen election. He means the entire country that has been stolen from us through many decades of infiltration. However, that is not the focus of this gun. The focus of this diamondback is to tell us about the spy, to tell us about what the spy's capabilities are, what he has done in the past and what he is doing currently and what he will do in the future. The Diamondback belongs to a spy who is capable of disguising himself to appear to be an enemy. Prior to Elon hinting that he was thinking about buying Twitter, he completely disguised himself as a liberal. With ownership and or founding of companies dealing with electric vehicles, AI bots, Neuralink, and even a tunnel boring company, he fit in perfectly with what we see the World Economic Forum pushing. In doing this, Elon has been able to amass nearly 120 million followers, most of whom would never follow a conservative. On Twitter, that can see only everything he says on the platform. Where the spy has his array of knives that allow him to kill any enemy with a single swipe, Elon's has his immense wealth that was primarily acquired through his DoD contracts, which so, hap- which so happened to begin less than two months after Trump's inauguration. With his quote-unquote knife, he was able to buy Twitter out from under the deep state's feet, effectively stabbing his apparent friends 
in the back. The engineer's buildings that the spy can destroy with his sapper are the algorithms in place at Twitter. They were key to censorship as well as the criminal acts that were spread and hidden through the platform. With having full control of Twitter, he is able to see the DMs, the names and the health of the spy of every person on Twitter and relay the evidence or intelligence to Congress, law enforcement, or any other agency that is investigating the individual at that time. Washington's rules of civility and decent behavior in companies and conversation. This shows that Elon is working to change Twitter into an ethical, civil, and decent place, both in the conversations on Twitter as well as the manner in which he is operating the company as a whole. The Declaration of Independence in the Constitution of the United States lets us know that he is doing all of this to help those that he is working with to redeclare this country's independence and return it to how the Founding Fathers intended it to be by following the Constitution and the rule of law. Between this photo... What we can see Elon is doing at Twitter and his tweeting of Q memes, we can rest assured that Elon is heavily engaged in this fight and he will not be backing down. I expect that soon Elon will be opening the battlefield for the tens of thousands of band Anons to be able to rejoin the fight as Q had originally instructed. Prepare your memes. This is about to get interesting. Very good substack from Patriot CP. His Substack is patriotcp.substack.com, and I'll link it in the chats right now if you guys want to give him a follow. I hope he writes some more stuff like this, because that was pretty good. I don't think... I can't link it on... Uh, for those of you watching on DLive, thank you. I can't link it over there because I can't log into my DLive. Um, ever since Twitch banned me, I haven't been able to get back into DLive. So, um, but there it is. Pretty interesting Substack. I also shared it on my uh, True Social and Telegram the other day. I'll share it again later today. Um, I want to give a comment to, I just thought of something else about that game, Deus Ex. And um, I want to say it's the second, it's either Human Revolution or Mankind Divided. It's one of the sequels. Um, one of the main bad characters is this person who controls the media. And the main character is a cop. And he's uh, he tries to break into their criminal organization. And he's trying to get to into the media world. And when he does, he finds out that the media are controlling all the information and there's this character who's on everybody's TV, who is like the number one news person that um, is telling all the people what is going on and either flaring up riots or calming riots down. And when he gets, goes to meet her, he finds out that she's a hologram. She's just a computer. She doesn't even exist. She's just a construct. Um, and so there's some sinks there, some analogies there with, what we're going through now with how the media is a construct that is constantly trying to program us. Um, I'm telling y'all Elon, Elon has done a bunch of Deus ex comms. And even if you're not into playing video games, if you look up the video game Deus ex and just read the storyline of the, th the three main games, the first one, mankind divided and human revolution, 
you'll see how Elon is, how, how it syncs up with what we're going through. Like human revolution is all about augmenting people. And uh, this evil, like world globalist corporation thing is uh, augmenting people's arms and bodies. And they're basically becoming half robots, but it, they get them addicted to medicine and they have to constantly have this uh, medicine to prevent their body from their immune system from attacking the augmentation that has been put into them. And uh, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so similar to conversations we're having now about the world economic forum and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, and then I, since I mentioned that, I might as well mention Elon had, you know, his Neuralink um, conference the other day and everybody's, or not everybody, I shouldn't say everybody. People freak out about Neuralink. I personally don't because I think Elon is, I, well, I'll say it this way. I think that such te technology, such as Neuralink is inevitable and it's a tool and it's all about what we use that tool for. So we can, are we going to use it for bad? Or are we going to use it for good? And I'm not bothered by Elon pursuing the technology because I think it's going to be pursued no matter what. It's like, it's just a tool. And if it can do things like restore eyesight or hearing or help people with uh, brain degeneration and, and handicaps and other things like that, then it can be a really good tool in the hands of the wrong people. It can be a really bad tool. And there's definitely going to be some bad people out there who want to use such things in an evil way. And there need to be laws passed to try and prevent that. And there needs to be enforcement mechanisms to prevent that. But I don't see what Elon's doing as being inherently evil or inherently wrong. A lot of people do. I don't. I think there's, I think there's, um, I think there's a lot of hyperbole and fear mongering about Neuralink, just like there's a lot of hyperbole and fear mongering about Tesla and about Starlink and about a whole bunch of other new technology. So, yeah, and and AI. Uh, like, Elon has been on the cutting edge of AI for a long time, warning about the dangers of, of AI and that we need to be proactive in deciding how we're going to handle the AI future that is inevitable. It's inevitable that AI is going to be a part of our lives. It already is, but it's going to be a part of our lives in a much bigger way. And it's going to change the world and how humans interact with the world. And we need Congress to pass legislation that gets out ahead of AI before it's too late. And Elon has been, he's been on that for a long time. So I'm full in on the Elon's a white hat, good guy train. I'm, I'm hundred percent in on it. That's, that's the train I'm riding. Elon's good. I think he's, I don't think he's on the Q team. I think he's an operator though. So RL Skeeter, thank you very much. That is an awesome rumble rant. Thank you. Um, RL says, thank you for all your help with sorting through all the news and events. You have the best family with great digging and research abilities, man. I do. This community is awesome. 
this community is awesome and they uh they provide me with lots of good information it's fun digging with y'all and i am very blessed by this community even the people in chat who are telling me laws mean nothing and jesus wouldn't want neuralink <laughs> even you guys i disagree with you i disagree with you but uh it's okay it's okay um we'll we'll just disagree on it okay next thing i'm trying to decide this is gonna be well i gotta cover it i might as well i'll just jump in we'll see how far we can get with it i hope y'all are ready to uh nerd out with me on this all right U.S. Court of Appeals, y'all may, re well, first, y'all may remember, <laughs> y'all may remember, um, on Wednesday, I was going over that, uh, the special master canceled the conference that was supposed to happen yesterday with, it was supposed to be DOJ and Trump lawyers. We're going to meet with the special master to discuss uh, global issues and the remaining docs, which there weren't that many docs that they had some, they had some differences on categorization. And I read through some of the documents in the, in the case. And I went through some of the filings and I was telling y'all that, you know, this is like a fake fight. Like Trump's attorneys clearly know what should, what should be categorized in what way. And they do it correctly in some places. And then in other, other places they make ridiculous mistakes and miscategorize something. And it's like, what, why'd you even do this? And so I was saying, it's like a fake fight. And the whole thing, like, as I've said the whole time is about establishing precedent and establishing templates. And yeah, that's what I think's going on. Well, lo and behold, now we know why, the special master canceled that meeting. It's probably because he had heard the appeals court was going to rule against him. And that's what happened yesterday. There was no reason to have a meeting because the appeal 11th circuit court of appeals, which has three Trump appointed judges on it, by the way, this isn't some corrupt court full of liberals who just hate Trump. This is a court that has three Trump appointed I'm pretty sure they're all they're all GOP. I'm pretty sure all three are Trump appointed. At least one of them is Trump appointed. Uh, Court of Appeals shut down the special master. The special master is done. And the media is portraying this as a loss for Trump, that Trump lost big time and they're doing they're celebrating. OK, so the MSM is going to celebrate this. And the conservative incorporated media is going to say that Trump's been done dirty again. Trump can't get a fair uh, judgment in a court. He's enemy number one. This is all crooked. The justice system is is just is just ruined, et cetera, et cetera. But let's not let's not jump to that. Let's not jump in with that group think on either the left or the right. Let's go through the filing. Let's go through the, the opinion of the 11th circuit. And let's see if this opinion makes sense to us. Because I think it's really, really important, this opinion. And it, it's going to have... I think it affects future prosecution. I know it affects future prosecutions. Um, I do believe Trump is going to appeal it. 
He's going to appeal it to SCOTUS. And then SCOTUS is going to rule that this is correct. He's going to lose, quote unquote, again. I don't believe that Trump actually is losing here. But that's how the media is going to portray it, because why would they ever portray Trump as winning, guys? One thing that a lot of people need to get is that the media is never, ever going to portray that Trump is winning. Whatever is going on, they're either going to say that Trump lost or this is Trump's last go round or Trump is damaging this or that. Um, It's a Pyrrhic victory like they're. They're never going to say, well, there you go. Donald Trump does it again. He wins. He was right. They're never going to do it. So don't look for it. Don't expect it. Okay. I saw some people in chat saying they were having trouble finding me, but I'm live on... uh, I'm live on all the places I'm normally live on. So, okay. 11th Circuit. This is Donald J. Trump versus United States of America. Opinion of the court. This is before William Pryor, Chief Judge, Grant, and Brasher. This appeal requires us to consider... Let me uh, move... Get this beer. There we go. This appeal requires us to... Con- this. Okay, actually, I need to back up even more. Sorry. Y'all may remember the reason this is at the 11th Circuit is because back when the special master was appointed by Judge Cannon, y'all may remember, this was back in September, I think, DOJ said, we're going to appeal this to the 11th Circuit. And when they did that, the 11th Circuit said, we will take your your appeal. DOJ had to stop using the documents they had seized in their investigation. And then, but the special master could go ahead. So the special master got to continue his work of sorting through documents, but the DOJ could not use the materials they seized for their investigation while the 11th circuit was considering this case. They've been considering it this whole time. And even in the special master has been working this whole time and the documents that DOJ sees that they want to use for their investigation that has been on hold. All of those things are over now with this ruling. DOJ can now use the documents they took from Mar-a-Lago in their investigation. The special master's work is done and Donald Trump's lawsuit, Trump v. United States, is over. That's what this does. And the appeal they're referring to here is the appeal that DOJ brought to the 11th Circuit. Okay. Former President Donald J. Trump brought a civil action seeking an injunction against the government after it executed a search warrant at his Mar-a-Lago residence. He argues that a court-mandated special master review process is necessary because the government's privilege review team protocols were inaccurate or inadequate. Attorney-client privilege, wait, because various seized documents are protected by executive or attorney-client privilege. Because he could have declassified documents or designated them as personal rather than presidential records. And if all that fails, because the government's appeal was procedurally deficient, the government disagrees with each contention. So we have three three points right here on which he's appealing. The privilege review team's protocols were inaccurate because inadequate. I'm sorry. They were inadequate because various seized documents are protected by executive 
or attorney-client privilege because he could have declassified documents or designated them as personal rather than presidential records and because the government's appeal was procedurally deficient. These disputes ignore one fundamental question, whether the district court had the power to hear the case. After all, quote, federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. They possess only that power authorized by the Constitution and statute, which is not to be expanded by judicial decree. This case, with such an expansion, exercises of equitable jurisdiction, which the court invoked here, should be exceptional and anomalous. Our precedents have limited this jurisdiction with a four-factor test, Ritchie versus Smith. Plaintiff's jurisdictional arguments fail in all four factors. In considering these arguments, we are faced with a choice. Apply our usual test, drastically expand the availability of equitable jurisdiction for every subject of a search warrant, or carve out an unprecedented exception in our law for former presidents. We choose the first option, so the case must be dismissed. As plaintiff's presidential term drew to a close in January 2021, movers transferred documents from the White House to his personal residence, a South Florida resort and club known as Mar-a-Lago. Over the course of that year and into the next, and consistent with its responsibilities under the Presidential Records Act, the National Archives and Records Administration sought to obtain missing presidential records that its officials believed were in the plaintiff's possession. The government first sought the voluntary return of the records. In January 2022, after months of discussions, plaintiff transferred 15 boxes of documents to the National Archives. Inside were, quote, newspapers, magazines, printed news articles, photos, miscellaneous printouts, notes, presidential correspondence, personal and post-presidential records, and a lot of classified records. End quote. Affidavit in support of application on Rule 41. That is from the search warrant affidavit. The Department of Justice was alerted about the classified materials in February 2022. It then sought access to the 15 boxes so that the FBI and others in the intelligence community could examine them to assess important national security interest, including, quote, the potential damage resulting from the apparent manner in which these materials were stored. The National Archives later advised plaintiff that it planned to provide the FBI access to the records in roughly one week. When he requested a delay of up to 11 days, the National Archives agreed. When the new deadline arrived in April 2022, plaintiff requested yet another extension. He also informed the National Archives that it declined to grant it, that if it declined to grant that extension, it would make a protective assertion of executive privilege over the documents. The National Archives rejected that assertion as unviable, saying, quote, the question in this case is not a close one, and informed plaintiff's representatives that it would give the FBI access to the records. Plaintiff did not follow through with any effort to block the FBI's review of the documents. So the FBI reviewed the records in mid-May, more than three months after it first learned that classified documents had been stored at Mar-a-Lago. It found 184 documents marked at varying levels of classification, including 25 marked top secret. In the meantime, the FBI had developed evidence that even more classified information 
Oh, it looks like uh it's like Rumble just crashed. Yeah, it's a rumble issue. I'm going to keep going. Okay. Sorry about that. Plaintiff did not assert claims of privilege or declassification in response to the subpoena. But he did seek more time to produce the requested documents, and the government eventually extended the compliance deadline to June 7th, 2022. A few days before the deadline was set to expire, plaintiff's representatives produced an envelope wrapped in tape, which was consistent with an effort to comply with the handling procedures for classified documents. It contained 38 classified documents, 17 of which were marked top secret. There's that number again. Dasting. A declaration accompanying the document certified that a diligent search was conducted of the boxes moved from the White House and that any and all responsive documents had now been produced. Even so, the FBI developed more evidence that the classified documents remained at Mar-a-Lago. In August 2022, over one and a half years after the end of the planet's presidential administration, and six months after the first transfer of boxes to the National Archives, and three months after the subpoena was served, the Department of Justice sought a search warrant. All right, guys, I'm going to pause and try to correct Rumble because uh, there were over a thousand people there and Rumble, for some reason, ended the live stream. So if you're watching this on replay, I am sorry. I'm going to see if I can fix this issue because there's a lot of people over there. Okay, I'm going to try this again. Everybody else is fine, but for some reason, Rumble says Rumble ended my stream, but then on my back end on Rumble, it says the stream is still going when it's obviously not. So let me go through the 12 steps of starting a stream on Rumble because Rumble is Rumble going to Rumble. Try again. Okay.
sorry for the interruption, guys, but really bad. There are over a thousand people there, and it just got killed. So if I can get it started again, I want to get it started again. Let's see. Nope. Nope, it won't. Rumble's down. Yep, it won't start again. Rumble's down. Okay. All right, we'll go back to this. So, after all this time, the FBI decided to get, or the DOJ decided to get a search warrant. Um, I just want to add in, during this time period between May and August when the search warrant was issued... They also sent a subpoena. They also visited Mar-a-Lago and took a tour of it and recommend, had recommendations about the locks there. And then they also um, gave Trump a subpoena for video camera footage from their security system. And Trump and Mar-a-Lago complied with that and gave them the video for the um, the area that they would later search. So even though they're like playing this thing where they're like, asking for extensions of time, asserting executive privilege, saying this is the president's personal records. They're also complying with DOJ and giving them a tour and taking their advice on the security system. The security system was updated or whatever. Um, I don't mean, I think that was in July. I remember finding the record for it a while back. And then they complied with a subpoena for video camera footage. Okay. Or security cam footage. All right, DOJ decided to seek a search warrant in August of 2022. It presented an FBI agent sworn affidavit to a Florida magistrate judge who agreed that probable cause existed to believe that the evidence of criminal violations would likely be found at Mar-a-Lago. The warrant affidavit, which we've shown on this show many times, including just two days ago, the magistrate judge issued a search warrant for the offices, storage rooms, and potential storage sites at plaintiff's residence and authorized the seizure of, quote, all physical documents and records constituting evidence, contraband, fruits of crime, or other items illegally possessed in violation of 18 U.S.C. 793-2071 or 1519, including the following, any physical documents with classification markings, along with any containers, boxes, including any other contents, in which such documents are located, as well as any other containers, boxes that are collectively stored or found together with the aforementioned documents and containers and boxes. B. Information, including communications in any form regarding the retrieval, storage, or transmission of a national defense information or classified material. C. Government and or presidential records created between January 20th, 2017 and January 20th, 2021, or D, any evidence of the knowing alteration, destruction, or concealment of any government and or presidential records or any documents with classification markings. Search warrant at four, the, the, the warrant the affidavit described, I think it means paragraph four, the warrant affidavit described a set of protocols proposed by the government to create a privilege review team. That'd be the filter team, or as I like to tell Patrick, it's called the taint team. Um, 
Sorry, I was just checking to make sure Rumble was still down. Hmm. All right. The FBI executed the search warrant on August 8th. Agents seized approximately 13,000 documents and a number of other items, totaling more than 22,000 pages of material. Despite the certification from plaintiff that any and all documents bearing classification markings had been produced, 15 of the 33 seized boxes, containers, or groups of papers contained documents with classification markings, including three such documents found in desk in plaintiff's office. All told, the search uncovered over 100 documents marked confidential, secret, or top secret. Notice it's marked. That doesn't mean that they are confidential, secret, or top secret. It's that they're marked that way. That's how they would be marked if they had been declassified. They're lacking the declassification stamp, which is why there's confusion over it. Plaintiff requested a copy of the Warren Affidavit, an opportunity to inspect the seized property, a detailed list of what was taken from the residence and where it was found, and consent to the appointment of a special master to protect the integrity of privileged documents. The government denied these requests shortly after the search. I think Rumble's working again, but y'all are welcome to stay where you are. Foxhole is comfy. A few weeks later, plaintiff filed a new action in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Florida, which he styled as a motion for judicial oversight and additional relief. The motion asked the court to, one, appoint a special master, two, enjoin review of the seized materials under a special master was appointed, or until a special master was appointed, sorry. Enjoin means they needed to stop review of the seized materials. Three, require the United States to supply a more detailed list of the items seized. That'd be the property receipt. And four, order the United States to return any item seized that was not within the scope of the search warrant. The motion was a civil filing. It did not explain how the district court had jurisdiction to act on all of its requirements or all of its requests. It did, however, claim to be a precursor to an eventual motion under Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 41G. That rule permits a, quote, person aggrieved by an unlawful search and seizure of property or by the deprivation of property to move for the property's return. So if you've been raided and the cops come and take a bunch of stuff and you're like, nah, you guys shouldn't have taken all this over here. Rule 41G allows you to file and say, yeah, you need to return my property because you didn't you, it was unlawful that you took it in the first place. The district court could not identify a sufficient jurisdictional basis for the filing, so it requested a jurisdictional brief. Days later, plaintiff responded that the district court had an equitable and ancillary jurisdiction, as well as anomalous jurisdiction, to enjoin the government and appoint a special master. He also suggested that federal Rule of Civil Procedure 53 may create an independent cause of action to appoint a special master, but cited no authority for that theory. As for the requested injunction against the United States, plaintiff noted that the law's ambiguity meant that principles of fairness supported exercising jurisdiction over the entire motion. The next day, on August 27th, the district court issued an order declaring, quote, its preliminary intent to appoint a special master, and requiring the government to provide plaintiff with a more detailed list of seized items. The court stated 
that it had jurisdiction pursuant to the court's inherent authority in Federal Rule of Criminal of Civil Procedure 53B1, which reads, quote, before appointing a, a master, the court must give the parties notice and an opportunity to be heard. Any party may suggest candidates for appointment. After a response from the government that included a description of its privilege filter process, the district court issued a September 5th order directing the appointment of a special master under soon-to-be-developed procedures and barring the government from using any of the seized documents, quote, pending resolution of the special master's review process. The order was issued pursuant to the court's equitable jurisdiction and inherent supervisory authority. Three days later, the government filed a notice of appeal. It also filed a motion for a partial stay of the injunction so that it could continue using the seized items or the seized documents bearing classification markings in its criminal investigation. The district court rejected the partial stay on September 15th. It also issued an order naming the special master and setting out his specific duties. The government sought a partial stay from this court the next day. We granted the stay, including that the district court likely had no equitable jurisdiction to issue an order relating to the classified documents. Plaintiff applied for relief in the Supreme Court, but that request was denied. On October 5th, this court approved the government's request for expedited briefing in its appeal of the September 5th order, blocking review of the seized documents and directing the appointment of a special master. Now, with the benefit of oral argument, we conclude that the district court lacked jurisdiction to consider plaintiff's initial motion or to issue any orders in response to it. Because federal courts lack general jurisdiction, it is, quote, to be presumed that a cause lies outside of our limited jurisdiction. The burden of establishing the contrary rests upon the party asserting jurisdiction. We review an exercise of equitable jurisdiction for abuse of discretion. And review of preliminary injunction includes the power to dismiss the entire action based on jurisdiction or the merits. Only the narrowest of circumstances permit a district court to invoke equitable jurisdiction. Such decisions, quote, must be exercised with caution and restraint, as equitable jurisdiction is appropriate only in exceptional cases where equity demands intervention. It is a familiar rule that courts of equity do not ordinarily restrain criminal procedures. To avoid unnecessary interference with the executive branch criminal enforcement authority, while also offering relief in rare instances where a gross constitutional violation would otherwise leave the subject of a search warrant or a search without recourse, this circuit has developed an exacting test for exercising equitable jurisdiction over suits flowing from the seizure of property. Richie V. Smith instructs courts to consider four factors. One, whether the government displayed a callous disregard for the plaintiff's constitutional rights. Two, whether the plaintiff has an individual interest in and need for the material whose return he seeks. Three, whether the plaintiff would be irreparably injured by denial of the return of the property. And four, whether the plaintiff has an adequate remedy at law for the redress of his grievances. Plaintiff's jurisdictional brief in the district court dispatched with all four of these inquiries in a single paragraph. But Ritchie's inquiry is not as simple as that filing made it out to be. 
when we examine plaintiff's argument about the Ritchie factors, we notice a recurring theme. He makes arguments that, if consistently applied, would allow any subject of a search warrant to invoke a federal court's equitable jurisdiction. The understanding of Ritchie would make equitable jurisdiction not extraordinary, but instead quite ordinary. Our precedents consistently reject this approach. We have emphasized again and again that equitable jurisdiction exists only in response to the most callous disregard for constitutional rights, and even then only if other factors make it clear that judicial oversight is absolutely necessary. Part A. We begin with whether plaintiff has shown a callous disregard for his constitutional rights. Whether that sort of violation has occurred is the foremost consideration for a court when deciding whether it may exercise its equitable jurisdiction in this context. When considering this factor, our precedent emphasizes the, quote, indispensability of an accurate allegation or an accurate allegation of callous disregard. Absent that, courts will not intervene in an ongoing investigation, and rightly so because the vast majority of subjects of a search warrant have not experienced a callous disregard of their constitutional rights. This factor ensures that equitable jurisdiction remains extraordinary. Otherwise, a flood of disruptive civil litigation would surely follow. This restraint guards against needless jurisdiction intrusion onto the course of criminal investigations, a sphere of power committed to the executive branch. The callous disregard standard has not been met here, and no one argues otherwise. The district court's entire reasoning about this factor was that it agrees with the government that, at least based on the record to date, there has not been a compelling showing of callous disregard for plaintiff's constitutional rights. None of plaintiff's filings here or in the district court contest this finding. Instead, he says callous disregard of his constitutional rights is not indispensable to Ritchie's test. That is an incorrect reading of our precedent, as well as inconsistent with the long-standing principles outlined above, and the fact that Ritchie considers three other factors in his test does not suggest otherwise. To the contrary, these factors underscore how rare this exercise of jurisdiction should be. Even a callous disregard of constitutional rights is not enough, on its own, to allow for the type of relief that the plaintiff seeks. As we did in Chapman, a different case, we will consider the remaining factors for the sake of completeness. So right here, guys, I'm going to give some commentary. Right here, it's already bunk. It's it's done. Right there, it failed to pass. What has happened here in Trump's civil action fails to pass the first element of the Ritchie test that there was callous disregard for Trump's constitutional rights. There wasn't. One, Trump, Trump himself wasn't searched. Two, the search warrant itself and what was searched was not extraordinary or unusual. And what it said, I know there's been claims that it was overbroad and this was ridiculous. They were they just went in and took everything. They went into Barron's room and went through his stuff. Like the search warrant was very specific about where they could go. It was this room, this room, and this room. I remember one of them was 45 office, one of them was the storage room, the storage closet, the basement level. It was specific what areas were to search. Remember, the FBI had already, or DOJ had already been there with Trump's people walking around those areas. And then they got the security footage 
And then they came up with the affidavit saying, we have reason to believe there are evidence of these types of crimes located in these areas of Mar-a-Lago. And they got the search warrant to search those areas of Mar-a-Lago. They took the document, they took documents and boxes of stuff that fell within the bounds of that search warrant. They produced a property receipt. They got a privilege review team, a filter team to go through that stuff to screen it for anything that could possibly be attorney client privilege documents and set those aside. And then Trump came up with the civil action to go through this whole thing that we've been going through. And when you, the fact that it doesn't pass this first test, in my opinion is another one of the reasons why this is a fake fight. This like Trump is not stupid. And Trump does not hire stupid lawyers to make these filings. They know what they're doing. So why are they having this fight in the first place? I think one of the biggest reasons is because they are eliminating chess moves that other players could make in the future. They're establishing the precedent that even if you're the president of the United States and you have your property searched under these circumstances, you don't get special treatment under the law. Everybody is equal under the law and it's setting that precedent right now. All right, section B. The second Ritchie factor is whether the plaintiff has an individual interest and need for the material whose return he seeks. Plaintiff's jurisdictional brief mischaracterized this standard, referring to the party's need for the seized material. Emphasis added. He is wrong to suggest that jurisdiction somehow depends on the balance of interest between the parties. The relevant inquiry is if he needs the documents. Plaintiff has made no such showing. His jurisdictional brief in the district court asserted that the government had improperly seized his passports and that its continued custody of similar materials was both unnecessary and likely to cause significant harm. But the passports had already been returned before he filed his first motion. And his jurisdictional brief did not explain what similar materials were at issue or why he needed them. See, guys, another sign that this is a fake fight. This is a dance he's doing with the court in order to get these precedents set, I swear. The district court was undeterred by this lack of information. It said that based on the volume and nature of the seized material, the court is satisfied that plaintiff has an interest in and need for at least a portion of it, though it cited only government filings and not plaintiffs. What was this footnote here? Plaintiff's Lawyers claimed at oral argument that the special master process is necessary to determine whether a constitutional violation happened. This doesn't make that doesn't make any sense because that's not what special masters do. See, another reason why you know you can know that this is a fake fight. Trump's lawyers claimed at an oral argument that the special master process is necessary to determine whether a constitutional violation happened. But that's not what special masters do. Special masters screen for attorney client privilege. Not, not constitutional violations. This is not enough. Courts have not authorized equitable jurisdiction. 
have, have emphasized the importance of identifying specific documents and explaining the harm from their seizure and retention. By pointing to thousands of privileged documents that the government retained for four years. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Neither the district court nor plaintiff has offered such specifics. Indeed, where's this footnote? Okay. Indeed, plaintiff does not press the district court's theory on appeal. Instead, he argues that the Presidential Records Act gives him a possessory interest in the seized documents. This argument is unresponsive. Even if plaintiff's statutory interpretation were correct, a proposition that we neither consider nor endorse, personal interest in or ownership of seized document is not synonymous with the need for its return. Footnote 3. During discussion of this factor at oral argument, Plaintiff's counsel noted that the seized items included golf shirts and pictures of Celine Dion. The government concedes that plaintiff may have a property interest in his personal effects. While plaintiff may have an interest in these items and others like them, we do not see the need for their immediate return after seizure under a presumptively lawful search. See, guys, do you really think Trump is is authentically and sincerely sending his lawyers to the 11th Circuit to argue that Trump has an imminent need, that he, he requires the return of his golf shirts and pictures of Celine Dion. In most search warrants, the government seizes property that unambiguously belongs to the subject of a search. That cannot be enough to support equitable jurisdiction. Having failed to show his own need, plaintiff attempts, as he did in the district court, to reverse the standard, arguing that the government does not need the non-classified documents for its investigation. This is not self-evident, but it would be irrelevant in any event. In any event, plaintiff's task was to show why he needed the documents, not why the government did not. He has failed to meet his burden under this factor. Part C. Ritchie next asked, quote, whether the plaintiff would be irreparably injured by denial of the return of property. Is Trump going to be irreparably harmed if the DOJ has possession of his golf shirts and Celine Dion pictures? In his jurisdictional brief, plaintiff suggested only that the government's continued custody of documents similar to his passport was likely to, to cause significant harm. And again, the district court stepped in with its own reasoning. It identified potential irreparable harm that could arise based on one, improper disclosure of sensitive information to the public. Okay, that makes sense. The United States retention and potential use of privileged materials. Okay. And three, the stigma associated with the threat of future prosecution. Okay. Plaintiff has adopted two of the district court's arguments, dedicating a single page of his brief to discussing the first and third theories of harm. On the first argument, plaintiff echoes the district court and asserts that he faces an unquantifiable potential, an unquantifiable potential harm by way of improper disclosure of sensitive information to the public. It is not clear whether plaintiff and the district court mean classified information or information that is sensitive to plaintiff personally. If the former, permitting the United States to review classified documents does not suggest that they will be released. Any official who makes an improper disclosure of classified material risks her own criminal liability. 
What's more, any leak of classified material would be properly characterized as a harm to the United States and its citizens, not as a personal injury to the plaintiff. As for records that may otherwise be sensitive, it cannot be that the prosecutor's reading unprivileged documents seized pursuant to a lawful warrant constitutes an irreparable injury for purposes of assertable equitable jurisdiction. Here, too, plaintiff's argument would apply to nearly every subject of a search warrant. (coughs) The district court's unsupported conclusion that government possession of seized evidence creates an unquantifiable risk of public disclosure is not enough to show that the plaintiff faces irreparable harm. Similar, similar reasoning guides our approach to the other potential injury identified by plaintiff, the threat and stigma of future prosecution. No doubt the threat of prosecution can weigh heavily on the mind of anyone under investigation, but without diminishing the seriousness of the burden, the burden that ordinary experience cannot support extraordinary jurisdiction. The third Ritchie factor also weighs against exercising equitable jurisdiction. And finally, Part D, Ritchie asked, quote, whether the plaintiff has an adequate remedy at law for the redress of his, his grievances. In other words, is there another path for Trump to take that would handle this and we don't need the circuit court to go out of their way and create this extraordinary case with the special master and all of this. In deciding this factor for plaintiff, the district court's answer was that he quote, would have no legal means of seeking the return of his property for the time being and no knowledge of when other relief might become available. This is not a sufficient justification. To start, plaintiff invokes Rule 41G in his brief on appeal, but only to say that it has been applied in other cases. The only argument that he has plausibly made relating to that rule is for the return of documents, quote, not within the scope of the search warrant. Not the return of all the documents, just the documents that weren't in the scope of the search warrant. There is no record evidence, record of evidence that the government exceeded the scope of the search warrant which, it bears repeating, was authorized by a magistrate judge's finding of probable cause. And yet again, plaintiff's argument would apply universally. Presumably, any subject of a search warrant would likely would like to have all of his property back before the government has a chance to use it. Plaintiff's alternative, alternative framing of his grievance is that he needs a special master and an injunction to protect documents that he designated as personal under the Presidential Records Act. But as we have said, the status of a document as personal or presidential does not alter the authority of the government to seize it under a search warrant supported by probable cause. Search warrants authorize the seizure of personal records as a matter of course. The Department of Justice has the documents because they were seized with a search warrant, not because of their status under the Presidential Records Act. So plaintiffs suggest that whether the government is entitled to retain some or all of the seized documents has not been determined by any court is incorrect. The magistrate judge decided that issue when approving the warrant. To the extent that the categorization of these documents has legal relevance in future proceedings, the issue can be raised at that time. All these arguments are a sideshow. Yes. That is true. All of these arguments are a sideshow. The real question that guides our analysis is this. Adequate remedy for what? 
The answer is the same as it was in Chapman. Quote, no weight can be assigned to this factor because plaintiff did not assert that any rights had been violated, that there has been a callous disregard for its constitutional rights, or that a substantial interest in property is jeopardized. If there has been no constitutional violation, much less a serious one, then there is no harm to be remediated in the first place. This factor also weighs against exercising equitable jurisdiction. None of the Ritchie factors favor exercising equitable jurisdiction over this case. Plaintiff, however, asks us to refashion our analysis in a way that, if consistently applied, would make equitable jurisdiction available for every subject of every search warrant. He asks us to ignore our precedents, setting that a callous disregard for constitutional rights is indispensable. He asks us to, de- to conclude that a property interest in a seized item is a sufficient need for its immediate return. He asks us to treat any stigma arising from the government's access to sensitive personal information or the threat of potential prosecution as irreparable injuries. And he asks us to find that he has no other remedy apart from equitable jurisdiction, even though he faces no remedial harm remediable, remediable harm. Anyone could make these arguments and accepting them would upend Ritchie requiring federal courts to oversee routine criminal investigations beyond their constitutionally ascribed role and approving a search warrant based on a showing of probable cause. Our precedents do not allow this and neither does our constitutional structure. Only one possible justification for equitable jurisdiction remains that the plaintiff is a former president of the United States. It is indeed extraordinary for a warrant to be executed at the home of a former president, but not in a way that affects our legal analysis or otherwise gives a judiciary license to interfere in an ongoing investigation. The Ritchie test has been in place for nearly 50 years. Its limits apply no matter who the government is investigating Cement that in your mind, guys, no matter who the government is investigating. To create a special exception here would defy our nation's founding prince, foundational principle that our law applies, quote, to all without regard to numbers, wealth, or rank. The law is clear. We cannot write a rule that allows only subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant, nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so. Either approach would be a radical reordering of our case law, limiting the federal court's involvement in criminal investigations. And both would violate bedrock separation of powers limitations. Accordingly, we agree with the government that the district court improperly exercised equitable jurisdiction and that dismissal of the entire proceeding is required. The district court improperly exercised equitable jurisdiction in this case, and for that reason, we vacate the September 5th order on appeal and remand with instructions for the district court to dismiss the underlying civil action. Now, I hope... I hope that if you listen to me read this thing, you agree with me that this is the right decision, that you agree with the court that this makes total sense. It makes total sense that they would come down with this ruling. And yet what is going to be portrayed in MSM is that Trump lost big time. 
and the walls are closing in. And conservative incorporated media and influence are going to say that Trump got done wrong again. The courts are crooked. Trump can't get a fair trial, etc. But this makes absolute sense. And it's so obvious that Trump was in a fake fight this whole time trying to establish precedent. And I mean, there's so many key lines that tell you what is really going on here especially like this one. We cannot write a rule that allows only former presidents to do this. What this is about, let me see if I can crystallize it. What this is about is making damn sure that when in the future, when people who have held a higher office also get searched, also get investigated. They don't get to do this stuff. He's taking chess moves. He's taking their their moves off the chessboard by already going through this theater, this fake fight with the district court and the 11th circuit. And I'm sure he's going to appeal this to SCOTUS and SCOTUS is going to back up this ruling right here. He's going to set the precedent across the country, the precedent for the entire country, that even if you're a person who has held the highest office in the land, you don't get to do what Trump is trying to do here. He's purposefully losing these fights in order to establish these precedents and establish this template. And by doing that, he takes away potential moves. Because imagine, imagine that this had been Hillary Clinton. Or Bill Clinton. And imagine that they had had their property searched like this in a search warrant. And imagine that they decided to challenge. And they decided to file with a district court that they had been, un- that it was unlawful. And their their fight with that district court was not fake. That they made the strongest arguments they possibly could with the best lawyers that they could possibly hire. And they got it filed in a district court that was very, very left and very, very friendly to the Clintons. And imagine she succeeded, or Bill and Hillary succeeded, in preventing DOJ from properly investigating them and properly using the evidence that they seized from their property. And imagine that court kept ruling in their favor. And then DOJ's investigation fell apart. That's a scenario that could very well happen. But thanks to Trump having this fake fight, it's already been taken care of and there's already the precedent so that if that happens in the future and she tries to do exactly what Trump tried to do here, DOJ can file with that circuit court or appeal it to a higher court and say, look, we've already been through this circus before when it came to Trump. Here it is. The Supreme Court backed up the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, Appeals ruling that there is no special treatment for a former president either based on this, this, or this. It met all the Richie factors. Like That's what this, in my opinion, that's what Trump is doing. <clears throat> He's taking away their moves. And if you guys listen to me read that whole thing, you're a bunch of nerds. And I thank you. Um, it is 1053. Okay, I have some more stuff to cover. And 
I feel like I'm definitely going to do a bonus hour, especially since we got interrupted. I'm really sorry that we got interrupted on Rumble, but it was absolutely a Rumble problem. Rumble, the site crashed. I don't know if anybody else had trouble, but it just Rumble killed it. Um, I need my coffee cup is empty and I need another cup. So we're going to take just a three minute break. I'm going to cue a three minute song. I will be back in three minutes and uh, we will continue. I have some other stuff to get to. So I'll be back in three minutes. Oh, that's the wrong screen. What in the world? Where is my intermission screen? There it is.
thank you very much for sticking with me. And again, sorry about the rumble problem, but I do believe it was rumble because nobody else had a problem. Um, I saw a comment. I want a couple comments. I want to respond to Leslie. Nineteen twenty four said, "I wouldn't necessarily call it a fake fight, just a fight he knows he will lose to set the precedent." I think that's fair. That's a fair way to describe it. Um, and then over on Foxhole, Johnny says, uh, "Johnny gifted me a cookie. Thank you very much." So, just wanted to point out also that Trump is still in possession of the raid footage. Just wanted to add that that is correct. And he's threatened to release it, but then said he's not going to. And I don't believe he will. I don't believe that he will release that footage. And it's the reason why he wouldn't release it should be obvious to everybody. The media has no footage of the raid. Raid, quote unquote. Media has no footage of it. Why would Trump give them that footage? They're just going to splice it up and replay it over and over again. And every single Democrat and rhino running for office in 2024 is going to make a commercial with that footage. So like he's whole, I think when Trump says, talks about the, the footage that he has of the quote unquote raid, he's trolling the media and he's trolling the candidates who oppose him because they want him to release it. They want to make commercials showing FBI agents going in and out of Mar-a-Lago. And Trump is teasing them, saying, I'm the only one who has this footage. <laughs> and that's another reason why you know that this whole thing is a setup, that it's it's kayfabe between Trump and the DOJ, who he, he's been an asset for, his family's been an asset for, his company's been an asset for, his brother, his dad, his granddad. They're all... They've all played a Batman role to the DOJ's Commissioner Gordon, and nothing's changed about that. That's why I'm so confident that Trump is not going to be indicted. Um, I don't even think he's the target of the investigation. If I'm wrong on all that, well, then I'm wrong. But I've literally read every single filing in the search warrant case and in the Trump versus United States case. I have not found a document anywhere that specifically names Trump as the target of the investigation. What it says is that we believe at this location in these areas of this location on this property, we will find evidence of crimes under these three statutes. Trump himself wasn't searched. His vehicles weren't searched. His airplane wasn't searched. His other properties haven't been searched. Anyway, I have more things to get to. I shouldn't, I shouldn't get off, um, on that, that rabbit trail right now. All right. I'm definitely going to have to do, um, I'm definitely going to have to do a bonus hour in order to cover, um, all that I want to, because, all right, which y'all want to do? Y'all want to cover the IGs? I think that's what I should probably, or Joffy. Here. Uh, actually, I'm going to, sorry, I ask. I'm going to make the decision for you because I'm going to do the, uh, I'm going to do the IGs first. And if we have enough time, I'll go to Joffy. That's what I'll do. All right. So the Senate has confirmed 
an inspector general for the DOD. This is the first time they've had an inspector general in seven years. The DOD has been without an inspector general for seven years. The guy who is filling this spot is Robert Storch. And remember, we just had that story the day before Pentagon admits it can't account for $2 trillion again. And immediately the next day, as if these, as if these news stories are timed by some kind of ghost in the machine, the Senate confirms an IG for the Pentagon. Now this guy, this guy, Robert Storch, this is him. American lawyer and government um, official serving as the first presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed inspector general of the NSA. That's right. This guy was the first presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed inspector general for the NSA. Trump did that. And then now Biden has nominated him to be the inspector general of the DOD. Here is his page from the NSA. It says, Robert P. Storch is the Inspector General for the National Security Agency and Central Central Security Service. He is the first IG at NSA to be appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate and assumed his responsibilities at the agency in January of 2018. Rob has worked with the team at the NSA office inspector general to enhance the impact, independence and transparency of the office's work, including the launch of its independent public website. It's OIG NSA.gov its presence on Twitter and the now regular public release of unclassified versions of the semi-annual reports to Congress and a number of other reports and summaries prior to coming to NSA OIG. Rob worked in the front office of the department of justice as an inspector general serving the last several years as Deputy IG. This is sounding really good. And he has DOJ OIG's first whistleblower ombudsman, ombudsman, leading efforts on the whistleblower rights and protections that he continues to emphasize at NSA. He has been active in the IG community, serving as vice chair of both the Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, the Technology Committee, and the CIGIE Integrity Committee as a member of the Government Side Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the PRAC, which provides oversight of pandemic relief spending. There's been a lot of indictments and action brought against people who took advantage of pandemic relief money and those, what was it, PPE loans, PPD loans or whatever. Um, I'm hoping that Phil Godlewski is going to kept is going to get their attention at some point. Rob started his legal career at the law firm of Covington and Burling. Oh no! And then spent two dozen years as a federal prosecutor, working as at the at the at two U.S. attorney's offices and public integrity section of the criminal division and Maine Justice. Guess what? This guy is also in the drops. Now, I saw someone say, 
He's in four drops. And I don't remember who it was. I think it was either a Twitter or a true social comment, but he's actually not in four. He's in three. The other Storch that's in this drop over here is a different one. This is CEO um, Gerald Storch. So that's a different guy. But we have this drop here. Panic in DC referencing Baker confirmed. Note IG involved. Huber to IG Horowitz to Storch. Q. Things are moving faster than you know, but that will soon change revisibility. Public interest forces the sun to shine. Why are we here? It went from Huber to Horowitz to Storch. This right here is referencing this drop, which is Panic in D.C., James Baker testifying against Comey, Joe DiGenova, and his being in front of a grand jury, and then this much longer drop over here about Robert Storch. And this is from September. These are all, this is September 19th, September 20th, and September 20th. Okay, so the, these all go together, okay? This guy's been working. How about a nice game of chess? This is from Q2211. How about a nice game of chess? IG Horowitz, Justice Department speech whistleblowers. And it's talking about this right here. Meet Inspector General IG Horowitz. Chairman of the Council of Inspector Generals on Integrity and Efficiency. Where did I just read to you that this guy was? He was the vice chair of that same committee. Quote, since 2015, he has simultaneously served as the chair of the Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, an organization comprised of all 73 federal inspectors general. Thank yesterday. What was learned? Robert Storch confirmed NSA IG. Yes, he was. Here's that link. Oh, it's gone. I'll have to find an archived one. First presidentially appointed IG for NSA. Yes, he is. Department of Justice background important. Yes. Federal prosecutor in the Northern District of New York. Yep. Chairman of the Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. Yep. Is his background important? Yes. Quote, prior to joining NSA, Mr. Storch served in several positions at the Department of Justice, and it quotes what I just read to you over here. Early in his career, Mr. Storch has worked as a federal prosecutor in the Northern District of New York, most recently serving as the Deputy Criminal Chief and Counsel to the U.S. Attorney. He, has, he was also posted overseas for two years as a Department Justice Resident Legal Advisor in Ukraine. Isn't that something? Vehicle for cross-sharing of department-to-department -department info. Re-Inspectors General. Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. Yep, he was there. How might this benefit possible ongoing investigations across the inter-intra-federal agencies? Huber to Horowitz to Storch. U.S. Attorney Prosecutor to DOJ FBI Inspectors General Investigator to Signals Intelligence and Information Assurance Product and Services. 
NSA has been pushing since the beginning. Yep. Logical thinking. The experts. But Sessions should appoint a second special counsel in D.C., a.k.a. the corrupt swamp. But Sessions should appoint a second special counsel in D.C., a.k.a. the corrupt swamp, a team of less than 20 typically, and wait two to four years, take a gamble. But Sessions should appoint a second special counsel in D.C., a.k.a. the corrupt swamp, because unlike the Clinton email corrupt case, as demonstrated by the FBI DOJ people fired, removed, this will be conducted faithfully and honestly, like Mueller. But FBI has not directly interviewed several witnesses before the appointment of Huber by Sessions, and therefore the IG is not genuine. But Sessions and Huber are following standard DOJ ongoing, open and ongoing investigation policy by not discussing or making public. So therefore, nothing must be happening. Fire Sessions. But Huber, ability to prosecute and impanel a grand jury outside of D.C., 90 plus percent of people in D.C. voted for HRC in 2016, who already began the investigations late last year with assistance from a team of 470 investigators. Plus IG, plus legal jurisdiction across all 50 states. It's not a special counsel, so therefore nothing is being done. But POTUS is attacking Sessions via Twitter, so therefore he must not be working on behalf of the people and people's interest. The D's and the left love and trust Sessions simply because Trump was attacking him, right? But interestingly, if nothing is is being done behind the scenes, why are so many FBI and DOJ senior officials being fired and or removed from their respective positions of power? Who is the AG? Who must sign off on reach removal, DOJ in charge of FBI. But interestingly, if nothing is being done behind the scenes, why are there 50,000 plus sealed indictments across the U.S.? Coincidence versus Huber start. But interestingly, if nothing is being done behind the scenes, why are many powerful CEOs, members of Congress and the Senate resigning? Is it a coincidence? Example. Pre-POTUS, did the Speaker of the House indicate wanting to leave politics? Interestingly, if nothing is being done behind the scenes, why are human, human trafficking arrests surging? Nothing to see here, Hugh. There's a whole lot in that drop, and I don't have time to unpack it all, but it mentions Storch four times in that, five times in that drop, and it's telling you, the drop is telling you that what Hoover was working on went to Horowitz, went to Storch. And now Storch is at the DOD. And this guy was at NSA. He's been in Ukraine. He's been a DOJ prosecutor out of New York. I think think this is huge. I think it's absolutely huge. And I'm surprised, I feel like I'm surprised more people aren't more excited about it. Here is Trump's message um, when he appointed, or his, uh, what is it called? It's from the Trump White House archives, but it's called an announcement. That's the word I'm looking for. Trump's announcement when he appointed June 16th, 2017. This is when he nominated Storch. Right here. Here. 
Good stuff. And there's one more thing with um, the inspectors general. Did I save it here? I thought I did. Oh, I missed it. It's somewhere on, where is it? There it is. This got, this got no, this didn't make the news at all, but check this out. Back on November 22nd, this press release came out. I missed it. Everybody missed it. Department of Defense Office of Inspector General. Heads of defense, state, and U.S. aid offices of inspectors general hold joint congressional briefing. When, how did we miss this? How did we miss this, guys? On November 18th, 2022, the heads of offices of inspectors general for the Department of Defense, the Department of State, and the U.S. Agency for International Development held a joint congressional briefing on their coordinated and individual oversight of activities in Ukraine. The OIG leaders hosted the bipartisan bicameral briefing to discuss their formal oversight partnership, share insights from their recent travel to Belgium and the Netherlands, and provide an overview of their respective planned and ongoing oversight work. They concluded the briefing with a question and answer session. More than 80 staff attended from the Senate and House Appropriations, Armed Services, Oversight, Intelligence, and Foreign Relations Committees, as well as various members' offices. The engagement was part of an ongoing dialogue between OIGs and Congress about how three OIGs are overseeing billions of dollars in assistance provided to Ukraine. So, DOD, who just got a new IG, who is from the Q drops, and former NSA IG, and the OIG from the Department of State and the OIG for the USAID Department are all overseeing and investigating and providing oversight on the money that we've been sending to Ukraine, which what? Has gone into the swamp, has disappeared, and has been cycled back into FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, and then has been funneled back into the Democrats and the the swampy Republicans campaigns in the 2022 midterms. Dude. Dude. Like that drop was getting at. Things are happening in the background that aren't immediately obvious and aren't being publicized, but then you find something like this and you find these little things popping up that show that something is going on. I mean, why did FTX scandal happen in the first place? People's Binance, Binance got nervous about it. Binance got nervous about it and started dropping the uh, FTX only coins that they had bought, which were basically like F- FTX loyalty coins, which are were made up money, basically. And FTX started collapsing, and it's led to all these other collapse. And uh, that's revealing, has revealed how the swamp has been sending money to Ukraine so that the swamp in Ukraine will send it back to the swamp in the U.S. And at the same time, the IGs are drilling in on Ukraine aid. And remember, we had the story a couple weeks ago about, or a few weeks ago, about how the U.S. military is in Ukraine overseeing equipment. 
and they're doing oversight work. They're not fighting. They're doing oversight work to make sure the equipment is going where it's supposed to go. I think a lot of people who were benefiting from the Ukraine swamp are super, super nervous right now. And I really think that one of the key factors in um, one of the key factors in the FTX scandal happening is that there were so many eyes on Ukraine and on this money and people started getting nervous. Okay. I've got a lot on Joffe. So I'm going to, this is going to be fast. I'm going to have to do this fast so I don't run out of time. Before I present this, thank you everybody for watching the show. If you enjoyed it, please hit the plus button on Rumble. Since we had a problem with the show earlier, I'm probably going to re, I'm probably going to upload the entire show. Um, because it's split over on Rumble. Um, if you're looking for uh, ways to support the show, guys, please just share it. That helps me out the most. Um, also, follow me on Twitter. Real Just Human is my handle over on Twitter. And if you want to do more than that, sign up for my Substack, justhuman.substack.com. Or if you want to keep my coffee cup filled, buymeacoffee.com slash justhuman. Those are the best ways to support the show. And I appreciate it very much. It's the, all the, everything I do is free. So when you guys support the show, you're making the show possible. You're what pay for the show to actually happen. So, and I thank you guys, y'all, y'all do a lot for me and I really appreciate it. Now, last segment, Joffe is finally back in the news. First, I saw this, um, thanks to a comment that happened somewhere, uh, I was, I was digging on Joffe for a different reason. And I've been going through Nim Kef, Fisher Ames over on Twitter. Great follow. I've been going through some of the, the threads he's done. And somehow I came across this question he asked back on March 5th of 2022. He said, did AOL and Hotmail give Joffe 80 million email addresses back on 17th September 2001? Like, what is he talking about? And sure enough, anti-spam laws, where are they? This article is from September 17th, 2001, from Wired. Nearly 6 million people in 24 states have registered to have telemarketing calls blocked under a new do not call list. But that doesn't mean similar laws for spam could ever pass, blah, blah, blah. They interview somebody from the Spam Con Foundation, et cetera, et cetera. Like, okay, this is talking about spam calls and millions of dollars spent to reach unqualified leads. And I remember all this. I remember when it was a big deal about people being able to sign up for a block list and the Digital Marketing Marketing Association tried to create an opt-out for the database, blah, blah, blah. And then right here. Rodney Joffe's list had the best chance to make it. As chairman of the American Computer Group, a firm that provides mailing lists to direct marketers, and founder of Genuity, the world's fourth largest ISP, Joffe has deep ties on both sides of the spam battle. 
1998, Joffe launched a service that allowed consumers and companies to sign up for a do not spam list called Safe EPS. The idea was to compile the list and then convince direct marketing companies to abide by it. AOL and Hotmail signed up. And Joffe had 80 million addresses in his database in just a few weeks. This is super interesting to me that Joffe was given 80 million email addresses by AOL and Hotmail because three years later, three years later in the 2004 election, some strange stuff happened in Ohio. And some of that strange stuff had to do with emails going out with election misinformation. And I'm just wondering if Joffe was involved in what happened in Ohio in 2004. That's another dig that I'm on. But this little blip, this is how Joffe came back into my mind recently, is this, I was looking at Joffe's possible role in the 2004 election. And then we got this news story. This is from November 8th. Mysterious company with government ties plays with government ties plays key internet role. This is from the Washington Post on November 8th, election day this year. So of course we all missed it because we were focused on the election. An offshore company that is trusted by the major web browsers and browsers and other tech companies to vouch for the legitimacy of websites has connections to U.S. contractors for U.S. intelligence agencies and law enforcement, according to security researchers, documents, and interviews. Google's Chrome, Apple's Safari, nonprofit Firefox, and other companies allowed this one, Trust Core Systems, to act as what's known as a root certificate authority a powerful spot in the internet infrastructure that guarantees websites are not fake, guiding users to them seamlessly. The company's Panamanian registration records show that it has identical slate of officers, agents, and partners as a spyware maker, identified this year as an affiliate of the Arizona-based Packet Forensics. Packet Forensics is Robney... Rodney Joffe's company, guys. So this company, Trust Core Systems, which provides a certificate service on the internet, which lets people know they're at a real website that actually is what it says it is. It's registered in Panama. But its officers and its agents and its partners are perfect copy of the Arizona-based Packet Forensics. Packet Forensics has public contracting records and company documents show that it sold communication interception services to U.S. government agencies for more than a decade. One of those Trust Corps partners has the same name as a holding company managed by Raymond Salino who was quoted in a 2010 Wired article as a spokesperson for Packet Forensics. 
Salino also surfaced in 2021 as a contact for another company, Global Resource Systems, that caused speculation in the tech world when it briefly activated and ran more than 100 million previously dormant IP addresses assigned decades earlier to the Pentagon. The Pentagon reclaimed the digital territory months later. Do you guys remember that? Remember when the Pentagon, three minutes before Trump left office, all of a sudden it activated like 100 million Email addresses, or IP addresses. And everybody was, what the heck? Why is this suddenly going active at the Pentagon three minutes for Trump left office? And then a couple months later, the Pentagon's like, ah, don't worry, we got all those. We got them back. It was a secret program, and uh, 175 million IP addresses. The Pentagon did not respond for a request to comment on TrustCore. <coughs> TrustCore also did not respond for to a request for comment. TrustCore's products include an email service that claims to end-to-end encrypt um, emails, though experts consulted by the Washington Post said they found evidence to undermine that claim. A test version of the email service also included spyware developed by a Panamanian company related to packet forensics. Google later banned all software containing that spyware code from its app store. A person familiar with the packet forensics work confirmed that it had used TrustCore certificate process and its email service message safe, MSG safe to intercept communications and help the U S government catch suspected terrorists. Yep. Packet forensics does that packet forensics, forensics council, blah, blah, blah. Now, This is the November 8th article. There's more. There is more. There is more. November 30th. Web browsers drop mysterious company with ties to U.S. military contractor. TrustCore Systems is what's known as a root certificate authority, a key position in internet infrastructure that guarantees a website is genuine. This past Wednesday... Major web browsers moved to stop using a mysterious software company that certified websites were secure three weeks after the Washington Post reported its connection to a U.S. military contractor. That'd be Packet Forensics. Mozilla's Firefox, or no, Global Solutions, sorry. Mozilla's Firefox and Microsoft's Edge said they would stop trusting new certificates from Trust Core Systems that vouched for the legitimacy of sites reached by their users capping weeks of online arguments among their technology experts, outside researchers, and TrustCore, which said it had no ongoing ties of concern. Other tech companies are expected to follow suit. Quote, Certificate authorities have highly trusted roles in the internet ec- ecosystem, and it is unacceptable for a CA, certificate authority, to be closely tied through ownership and operation to a company engaged in the distribution of malware, Mozilla's Kathleen Wilson wrote in a mailing list. Trust Corps' response via their vice president of CA operations further substantiates the factual basis for Mozilla's concerns. The Post reported November 8th, that'd be the article I just read, that Trust Corps' Panamanian registration records showed the same slate of officers, agents, and partners as a spyware maker identified this year as an affiliate of Arizona-based Packet Forensics, which has sold communication interception services to U.S. government agencies for more than a decade. One of those contracts listed the place of performance as Fort Meade, Maryland, the home 
of the National Security Agency and the Pentagon's Cyber Command. The case has put a new spotlight on the obscure systems of trust and checks that allow people to rely on internet for most purposes. Browsers typically have more than 100 authorities approved by default, including government-owned ones and small companies to seamlessly attest that secure websites are what they purport to be. TrustCore has a small staff in Canada where it is officially based at a UPS store mail drop. Okay, TrustCore, guys, TrustCore's mailing address and its office is just a USPS drop box. Company executive Raphael McPherson told Mozilla in the email discussion they never should have partnered with this company. She said staffers there work remotely, though she acknowledged that the company has infrastructure in Arizona as well. McPherson said that some of the same holding companies had invested in TrustCore and Packet Forensics, but the ownership in TrustCore had been transferred to employees. Packet Forensics also said it had no ongoing business relationship with TrustCore. Several technologists in the discussion said that they found TrustCore evasive on basic matters such as legal domicile and ownership, which they said was inappropriate for a company wielding the power of a root certificate authority, which not only asserts that a certificate HTTPS website is not an imposter, but can deputize other certificate issuers to be to do the same. The Post report built on the work of two researchers who had first located the company's corporate records, Joel Reardon of University of Calgary and Sergey Eagleman of University of California at Berkeley. Those two and others also ran experiments on secure mail offering from TrustCore named MessageSafe.io. They found, contrary to MessageSafe's public claims, emails sent through its system were not end-to-end encrypted and could be read by the company. So, this goes deeper. Wilson cited the past overlaps in officers and operations between TrustCore and MessageSafe and between TrustCore and Measurement Systems, a Panamanian spyware company which previously reported ties to Packet Forensics. In 2019, a security company controlled by the government of the United there you go a government of the United Arab Emirates the UAE that had been known as dark matter applied to be upgraded to a top level root authority from intermediate authority with less independence that followed revelations that dark matter had hacked dissidents and even some Americans Mozilla denied this request <coughs> In 2015, Google withdrew the root authority of the China Internet Network Information Center, CNNIC, after it followed an intermediate authority to issue fake certificates to Google sites. Reardon and Eagleman, or Eggleman, earlier this year found that Packet Forensics was connected to the Panamanian company Measurement Systems, which paid software developers to include code in a variety of apps to record and transmit users' phone numbers, email addresses, and exact locations. They estimated that those apps were downloaded more than 60 million times, including 10 million downloads of Muslim prayer apps. Measurement Systems' website was registered to Vostrom Holdings, I recognize that name. Vostrom, according to historic domain records, 
Wasserman filed papers in 2007 to do business with Packet Forensics. After the researchers shared their findings, Google booted all the apps with the spy code out of its Play Store. They also found that a version of that code was included in a test version of MessageSafe. McPherson told the email list that a developer had included that without getting it cleared by executives. Packet Forensics first drew attention from privacy advocates a dozen years ago. Um, let me see if I want to read the rest of this. Okay. So. This is all Joffe's companies. All these things, all these companies have ties to Joffe, Rodney Joffe, the guy at the center of Spygate, the guy at the center of, of Alphagate, the guy who the indictment of Sussman really seemed to be an indictment of and not Sussman. And now this has been exposed and I, I just have this feeling like it's Joffe's companies are being seeded into the news right now, there's something that's going to happen with Joffe. I'm not getting my hopes up too much that Joffe is the next indictment and the next arrest, but God, I hope he is. That'd be awesome. But it, this this company and Packet Forensics and what they're doing here, there's something that I want to make a point out and want to just put into your mind to consider. And if I can do a bonus hour this weekend, I will go into it more. But... These companies that Joffe was connected with, or that he owns and founded, um, they do this root certificate authority thing. They used to have contracts with the U.S. government and uh, internet companies. Root certificate authority proves that the that the website is legit. That when the website says yes, I am Google.com, it actually is Google.com or whatever the website is. But that means they can also fake it. They could put out a root certificate authority that says a website is a certain website when in fact it's not really that website. And these types of things, when you consider that Joffe had this ability, he had companies with this ability to make websites appear to be from certain locations to have certain names, to have certain registration. That means he could fudge it. And when you think about the entire Spygate scandal and Joffe's role in it, you have to wonder, did Joffe use these companies to fake any websites or any communications? Such as such as Russian hackers. Did Joffe, were any, were any of these accusations, any of this stuff that has pointed to Russian hackers hacking the 2016 election or whatever, were any of the certificates that showed that those were quote unquote Russian hackers from somewhere in Russia or outside of Russia? Was there any certificate authority that came from Packet Forensics or one of these other companies in there? Could they have faked that they were Russian hackers thanks to Joffe's companies? Did they use 
any of these companies and their access to such things to spy on people, such as the president and the president's family and people around the president, meaning Trump. It's it's extraordinary the amount of reach and access that Rodney Joffe would have had through these companies. So you you just got to wonder how how much was Joffe able to get into thanks to these companies that he had and um yeah yeah it's so, something's something's up with this i don't think this is the last we've heard of these companies and if Joffe did that, if Joffe was using these companies that are, you know, a couple of them are located in Panama, others are Canada with the Dropbox in Canada and the one in Arizona, then Durham can indict him in anywhere in the country, basically, because he's using this company. He could indict him in Arizona where Packet Forensics is if he was using that Packet Forensics to do this. It also gets into RICO because there's all these different players across all these different locations, different companies. Um, So there could be a RICO case here with Joffe that just has to do just Joffe and his companies and the role they played in this. So, this this is huge. But again, like it's one of those things, guys, where you don't it doesn't hit you as huge the way the media reports it. You know, like you just see mysterious company with government ties plays key internet role. Okay. Like, how many of you would see this headline and be like, oh, that's a story I really want to read? You know, and like it comes out November 8th on election day. So it's just like how many people actually clicked on this article and it's probably one of the least read stories that day in the news. But in this, like on the timeline, when you connect it to who the companies are and what they've been involved in and who owns them, it's like, oh my gosh, this has to do with the 175 million IP addresses that went active three minutes before Trump left office. What? What? And then now all these, then three weeks later, all of all the major internet browsers are dropping this system because it's associated with packet forensics, which has a malware company. And so they're double dipping. Cause like they, like, I don't know double dipping is the word, but they're like, actually, yeah. Oh, I just thought of something. DOJ has that new initiative to go after um, companies for um, having that are competing with one another, but have the same officials. I can't remember what it's called, um, but they just indicted the first set of companies over it. Remember, one of them was Solar Winds because the person who was on the board of Solar Winds was also on the board or a founder of a company that was competing with Solar Winds within the same space. I wonder, I can't remember what it's called, but I wonder if uh, this would fall under that too, because Joffe is the founder of Packet Forensics, which is 
which is doing certificate authority over here and trust core systems doing certificate authority, but he's also running this malware company, which is not authentic. Hmm. That thought just entered my head. All right. All right, fam, that's the show for today. Let me find the exit music. I have got to go. I've got to uh, pick my kid up from school. And then I've also got to figure out what's wrong with my wife's car. Cause my wife's car started acting up on the, on the way to uh, her way to work today. I had to go rescue her. Um, so I got to go. We parked it in a parking lot. I got to go. I get to go mechanic today. That should be fun. It's probably something really simple. Almost always is. All right. Guys, I hope you all have an awesome Friday. Sorry for the hiccup with the show earlier. Um, I am going to I'm going to upload the recording of this show to Rumble so that it's one complete show, not being two segments, you know, so and I'll decide later if I'm going to delete these. The lives that were are broken up. I'm not sure what I'll do anyway. I hope you all have a great day. Have a blessed day. Stay positive. Remember. We're not going to win every single battle, but we are going to win this war. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. Oh, uh-huh.